Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. We're calling 2019 the year of the Bible, and all year long we're reading through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and our Sunday sermons are coming from the weekly readings. If you'd like to join in, go to cornerstonetulsa.org, click on Year of the Bible. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. That look at the end was priceless. <laughs> oh, man, bless their hearts. Bless their hearts. They just lied to all of us and Jesus in front of, like, the whole country. Uh, well, it's uh, first Sunday in the season of Lent, which is, uh, you know, maybe familiar or unfamiliar to you. We started with Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday kicks off the season. Is Nina in the room? She's probably holding a baby somewhere. <laughs> If you're here, Nina spoke for Ash Wednesday. is a really, really strong message. So if you didn't hear that, you can check it out in the, the podcast. But it's really, really great. Kicked off Ash Wednesday. A lot of people give up stuff for Lent. That's not really, I'm not a huge New Year's resolution guy. I, I've, I've not really been in the habit of giving something up for Lent. Maybe that you would. But I'd encourage all of you to, to take something on rather than, you know, you can give something up if you want, but rather to take something on. And as a church, we're doing this thing called Year of the Bible, where we're trying to read. And I have a feeling that in this room, uh, there are probably a couple of people, maybe just one or two, who have fallen behind a day or two. Is it possible? How many people have fallen behind one day? Oh, so many of you are lying. You just saw the video. How many have fallen behind three days, at least three days? How many have fallen behind at least seven days? How many quit because it's just too hard? <laughs> Okay, so for the season of Lent, I want to let you know you are absolved from the days that you have not read. I would encourage you to uh, pick up tomorrow. Tomorrow we're starting a fresh book of the Bible. We're going to be in Judges. There are some great stories in the book of Judges that I'd highly encourage you to read. It'll be really entertaining. My favorite is the story of Ehud and Eglon, which you have to go look up because it's just so funny. But we'll be in the book of Judges. I'd encourage you uh, to pick that up. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Joshua. So if you have, you can grab a pew Bible in front of you. We'll be in Joshua 21. It's page 332. And in uh, reverence for God's Word, I'm going to invite you to please stand. And we're going to read this text together. It's also going to be on the screen for us here. Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. Let's read this together in one voice. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors. They took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. You can be seated. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that is with us now and points us to Jesus. And as we reflect on these scriptures today, we pray that you'll more faithfully enable us to follow him, to be patient and endure in our discipleship. And whatever you have for us, we just say yes to in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a brief but costly passage of scripture. We've just read in, in, in uh, Joshua 21. 
It comes at the tail end of, of the, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and it's at the end of Joshua having led these conquests to take over the land that God had promised. And it's a short passage, but it's an important passage in an otherwise dry passage uh, chapter. Joshua 21 is just a list of, of who got what land, and then it, it ends here, which might make us feel like we could skip over it. But there's some important things that were communicated. So the Lord God gave them the land that he promised their ancestors. He gave them rest from their enemies on every side, and not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. And it was a costly moment, not unlike a graduation being a costly moment, where you go to a graduation ceremony and there's a ton of work that precedes that moment of, you know, moving the, the thing from one side of the hat to the other. There are exams, there's struggles, there's, there's lecture, there's all of that. It was a costly moment. It's a costly moment like delivering a child is a costly moment. So many people these days struggle with infertility. To, to conceive a child is itself a miracle and a fragile thing. To go through the lengthy period, the trying period of pregnancy, and now this child has safely arrived to mark their birth is a costly moment. Or it's kind of like the costly moment of finishing your last round of chemotherapy and you get to go and you get to ring the bell, which is a beautiful thing. And Courtney, are you in here? Woo! Courtney, ring the bell. Praise God. It's a costly moment ringing a bell when there are lots of rounds of, of chemo, of wondering, of doubt, of sleeplessness, of all of that that preceded. Similarly, what we've just read in Joshua is a costly moment. It's come at the tail end of a, a long line of God's activity among this people called Israel. But what was it that made it so costly? If we went back to Genesis chapter 12, we see when God first made this promise uh, to one man, Abram, before he became Abraham. Genesis 12:1. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. So Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is 12 chapters into the Bible, and we see the makings of what would be fulfilled in Joshua 21. We see the land. There's the, the Canaanites who inhabit the land. Uh, we see just this promise of offspring, of, of Abram's family. He would conceive. To that point, Abram and Sarai uh, were childless. So the story starts. They leave their home. They go to this land. They see the whole place. God makes a promise. I'm going to give this land to your offspring, but they don't have any kids. God says, you're going to have it. Through your family line, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And they say, they wait, they hope, they trust. Time passes, they still don't have a kid think, well, maybe God wants us to be resourceful. And so they have Abram sleep with, with Sarai's uh, uh, servant, Hagar. They conceive Ishmael. And God, again, comes to the people, to Abram and Sarai, and said, no, you're going to have a child together through your offspring, your biological offspring together. I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. They wait. Time goes by. As Sarah is 90, Abraham is 100, and they finally get pregnant, and they give birth to Isaac. They're amazed. This, this elderly couple has conceived against all hopes and imaginations, and Isaac is born. Isaac grows up. He marries Rebecca, uh, has, has a son himself, a Jacob. There's also the whole scene where God told Abram to kill his son, and God was like, just kidding, you passed the test. Good, good job. 
Uh, Isaac marries Rebekah. He has, they have twins, Jacob and Esau, who fight all the time. And each parent sides with a kid. Jacob is a deceptive character. He's a weaselly kind of guy. And when his dad is growing old and blind, he tricks his dad into giving him the blessing of inheritance that the firstborn should receive, even though he was the second. Jacob takes his dad's money, and he's like the prototypical prodigal. He takes the money, and he hits the road. He goes to Uncle Laban's house. There he meets uh, Leah and Rachel, marries them, sleeps with them, uh, sleeps with their, their servants, and has 12 children, 12 children over in this land. Meanwhile, big brother is back home, and he's terrified of what, what would happen if they ever meet. It feels like it's the time to go back home. Jacob goes back home. God appears to him at Bethel. He's like, I'm going to bless the world through your family, reiterating the promise made to previous generations. Jacob and Esau get together. They make peace, and it feels like all is going well. Jacob's 12 sons are growing up. They settle in the land. The youngest is named uh, Joseph. He's, his dad gave him a cool multicolored jacket, which evidently made all of his siblings uh, jealous of him. And they say, let's kill him. And one of them, Judah, who's a really kind older brother, says, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. After all, he is our brother. What a kind, brotherly thing to do. So Joseph is sold into slavery. He goes down. He's working in the house of this Egyptian named Potiphar, falsely accused, sent to prison. There in prison, rotting away year after year. Finally, because he's an interpreter of dreams, he gets called up. Pharaoh's had this crazy dream. Joseph rightly interprets it, and he's given a position of second in command over all of Egypt, which is great. He wisely oversees the land in preparation for famine, and during the famine, his older brothers, those, all those guys who had sold him into slavery years ago, came down to Egypt because of famine in the land. Luckily, Joseph is in charge. They don't recognize him at first. Joseph plays some games with them because, you know, they had been sold him into slavery and all of that. And finally, they, they reunite, and they see him face to face, and he has this merciful and wise response. Dad comes back. The whole family moves down to Egypt to endure the famine, and there they settle. And then the Scripture tells us a, a Pharaoh came to power who didn't know Joseph, and the, the large, growing family of Israel was, became enslaved in the land of Egypt. And then 400 years pass. 400 years is a lot of time. 400 years is the distance between us and 1619. That's a long time ago. Or it's the distance between us and 2419. A lot of things can happen in that period of time. And for that lengthy stretch of time, Israel is enslaved. Finally, God hears the cries of the Israelites, raises up this guy Moses who is set apart for a particular purpose from birth. And uh, he grows up in a position of privilege in the house of Pharaoh. He sees an Egyptian abusing an Israelite and kills him. And uh, then because he, it's known what he's done, he hits the road. Forty years, Moses, the deliverer who would draw the people out of Egypt, was living in obscurity as a shepherd. There God appears to him, chases him down and says, uh, you're going to be the deliverer. You're going to be the one who draws my people out. So go back. Goes back with his brother Aaron. There are gnats, there are flies, there are frogs, there's blood everywhere. There's the, the death of the firstborn, there's Passover. God is demonstrating his power over the gods of the Egyptians, all these plagues. Finally, Pharaoh relents and says, you guys get out of here. And so they plunder the Egyptians, they take their silver and they hit the road. 
As they're on their way, they're coming up to the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, and Pharaoh has changed his mind, and they can see the dust kicking up in the back, and Pharaoh's army is chasing them down. They despair. What are we going to do? God says, don't worry. I got this. Moses strikes the sea with his staff, and it splits open, and they walk across on dry ground. And as the last of the Israelites crosses, uh, the water comes crashing back down on top of Pharaoh's army. They rejoice. They sing songs of worship. They go to Mount Sinai, Horeb as it's also called, and there they, they worshiped God. God appeared in smoke and fire on the mountain, revealed his law, made a covenant with Israel. They stayed there for a year inheriting the law, and uh, they, were, they, were, they were screwing it up even from the beginning, creating false gods. But God continued to mercifully invite the people into relationship with him. And they're thinking, three weeks from now, because that's as far as it takes, three weeks uh, to walk from here to the promised land, we're going to be in great shape. That three-week journey takes 40 years, 40 years of breakfast, lunch, and dinner, 40 years of manna on the ground, 40 years of wandering in circles, a, a distance, a journey that should have only lasted three weeks because they whined and they complained and they tested God again and again and again. We fast forward to the end of 40 years, that entire generation who walked the sea on dry ground has now died because of their hardness of hearts. And Moses, standing on the edge of the promised land, is talking to their children, to the second generation, warning them to follow God, to pay attention to the covenant unlike their parents. And Moses climbs a mountain. He can see into the promised land, and there he dies. And Joshua, his successor, takes the helm. God says to Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And so the first opportunity to display his authority as a leader goes up to the Jordan River. God tells him to, to strike it, and the, the Jordan River piles up. And again, the people walk through on dry ground. They take the land. There's the battle of Jericho. There's the sin of Achan. They take the city of Ai. They go after the southern cities. They go after the northern cities. And then all of a sudden, you realize they've driven out everybody. Inch by inch, war by war, year by year, God has fulfilled his promises. And then we read what we just shared in Joshua 21. The Lord gave them the land that he had promised their ancestors. The Lord drove out all of their enemies. Not one of the Lord's good promises to them had failed. It's done. It was a long process, and it was a painful process. It was arduous. And as I, was, as I was going through the reading, and, you know, the seven or so chapters that precede this are fairly dry. You're just looking at who gets what piece of land. So just, it's great stuff, but it's just, you know, it's kind of dry. And then you see this little bit just tagged on. Oh, yeah, and God kept all of his promises to the people. And it just occurred to me that in this moment, God is presented as, as a God who is totally unhurried. God is completely patient with this kind of process. Even though there was a lengthy gap between promise and fulfillment, God seemed perfectly at ease going at God's own pace. God never seemed anxious or so like results obsessed that he pressed fast forward on the process. God was, was unwilling to outpace the character of Israel. All along, God was using this arduous process, this pilgrimage, this journey to shape them into being the kind of people who could be a blessing to all of the nations. Every moment along the way was an invitation to trust and to surrender and to cooperate. He was trying to shape them. 
And this story, spanning the first six and seven books of the Bible, is for us the perennial pilgrimage story. And it gives for us, as we're trying to have a Scripture-soaked imagination, as we're trying to get a biblical imagination for the life of following Jesus, it gives us a picture for what life is like for us as we're in this journey as well. Emily and I are part of an apprentice group that's predominantly single 20-somethings, which is really, really fun. And uh, who's in the group? Props. Love you guys. Um, but we were having a fun discussion the other day. Uh, who said props? I haven't said that in 15 years. <laughs> props, y'all. So tight. Uh, so we were having this conversation the other day. It, we're in book two of the Apprentice Group like series, and we we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, especially Jesus' command uh, about anger. Do not, do not be angry with your brother. If, you've, if you're angry with him, you functionally killed him. And one member of our group had this awesome response. It was like, oh, why does God insist on doing all of this slow, deep work of transforming me? Like everything has to do with like what happened to you during your childhood. I'm just tired of it, which I thought was just wonderful. And, uh, and then I was talking to a friend this week, a really close friend this week, about just like dealing with some of the same old demons from, from all these years ago and being irritated that he's not changing. And he said, just in a moment of frustration, he said, like, I'm, I'm ticked off that there's nothing I can do today that's just going to fundamentally transform who I am. There's nothing I can do today that's just going to like flip the switch so that I'm better, so that I'm healed from the whole thing. And I love those moments of just expression of irritation about the pace at which we change and what it feels like, the pace at which God changes us. And uh, it seems to be the case that nine times out of ten, or maybe even nine and a half times out of ten, that God opts for the patient process instead of those microwave moments of transformation. It seems to be the case almost all the time that God opts for the slow process of transformation rather than the microwave moments where we changed instantaneously. And if you could go to the stories in the Gospels or even in the book of Acts where there was a, a person who was in a state and then transformed. Zacchaeus was, was a greedy guy. He, he loved money. He'd abused his power. Man, he met Jesus, and he was changed. He's repaying people for what he's done. There were lepers who were covered head to toe in these, in these skin-eating bacteria, you know, things that were just ripping them apart from the inside out. Instantaneously, Jesus healed them and changed them. But it seems to be the case that the majority of the time in Scripture and in our lives that God opts for the slow process of transformation rather than those microwave moments where everything changes at once. And on the one hand, this is encouraging because for those of us who, who are like, like we're wired toward doing the right thing, you want to be responsible, you want to be efficient, you want to steward the life that's been given to you wisely, it's encouraging to know that there's a process. It's encouraging to know that things go slowly. And so the response for all of us is just to, to trust God, to live in grace. God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. Trust God, live in grace, cooperate with the process, take a breath, you're all right. God has more invested your life than even you do. On the one hand, the process is encouraging. On the other hand, the process is irritating and it kind of hacks us off because we don't have the perspective 
perspective to know, as Ben said, where we are in the process. God, who operates outside of time and space, can see the whole thing. And yet we just have these two little eyes, these two little ears, this one brain that most of the time only works at half capacity. We only have the perspective that we have. And so we're limited. God knows what we're made of. We lack perspective. There's an information inequality between us and God. And that information inequality provides the tension, the context in which we are empowered and invited to grow, which is God's chief concern. If God had been obsessed about just getting the people to the land, he could have gotten them much more quickly or efficiently. Instead, they took the long way, working on their character, confronting their idols in the process. And similarly with us, this information inequality, this lack of perspective puts us in the middle of the story that keeps us utterly reliant on God's grace and keeps us on our toes. Tim Keller said, if we knew what God knew, we would ask for exactly what God gives. And so the response for us and the invitation for us is the same, to trust God, to rely on grace, to cooperate with the process, to take a breath. You're in God's hands. One of the most remarkable historical uh, transformations in, in, in all of history was the explosive growth of the church in the first centuries where the church went from being this minority Jewish sect within three centuries to becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire, the empire that killed its founder, Jesus, would one day bear his name. And there were all kinds of problems with Constantine. But what an amazing transformation. And the growth of the the Christian church has been remarkable. Lots of people have studied this. I've been reading this book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, which if if you don't know anything about church history, man, pick it up. It would be really great. Alan Kreider wrote this. And uh, it was, it was, it was trying, Kreider was trying to understand why did the church grow because there were lots of reasons that it shouldn't have. There were external reasons that the church should not have grown. One, they were, they were fringe, they were Jewish, which, which, you know, kind of in the Roman Empire certainly puts them at a position of disadvantage. Over time, they became a persecuted minority. And so if you're around under the time of Emperor Nero, when Christians are being burned as human torches to provide lamplight for his parties, that is a strong disincentive to become a follower of Jesus. When, when a Christian could be sent into the arena and there attacked with wild animals, publicly humiliated for not worshiping the gods of Rome, but instead pledging allegiance to this Jesus, another king, that's a strong disincentive to become a Christian. And yet we've learned how the church grew. We've, we've found some historical documents, and we see that in the, in the, the early first century, There were some church fathers together, Justin Martyr, Polycarp, and they put together a long-term strategic plan with smart goals. They had read Patrick Lencioni's The Advantage. They read Will Mancini's Church Unique. They put together this fabulous PR strategy to just saturate the market with pro-Christian language, and over time, it just worked. Not how they did it. It's not how the church grew. Um, there were some internal reasons as well that the church shouldn't have grown in the middle of persecution. This was fascinating to learn. Uh, 
As far as we can tell from studying all of the early church documents that we have access to, there was almost no evidence of a missional strategy in the early church. There was almost no mention of the word evangelism in the terms of like sharing your faith, going door to door, you know, Jehovah's Witness style. There's almost no evidence of anything like that. There's limited evidence of people who are considered missionaries in the same way that we would think about it. When the early church and the, the church in the first couple of centuries would make reference to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Anytime that those verses are mentioned, it's almost exclusively to teach the doctrine of the Trinity uh, or to talk about uh, a baptism, the, the imperative uh, to baptize people. It was almost never in that missionary sense. During the persecution by Nero, when the church was very afraid of being infiltrated by outsiders, deacons would stand at the door of worship gatherings and functionally check the Christian ID of the people coming in, making sure that the people who were coming into the worship gatherings were already baptized into the Christian faith, which itself was not an easy thing to do. Someone who would be baptized in the Christian faith often had to unlearn their pagan identity and practices. So they would go through this two-year, oftentimes two-year period of catechesis, of instruction. They could not receive the Lord's Supper until they finished that season of catechesis and were baptized. They were doing everything they could to, to, to keep from spreading the gospel. They weren't doing it in any conventional sense and to make it difficult to come to church. And yet, in spite of external persecution and in spite of the internal challenge of being a follower of Jesus, the church grew and grew and grew explosively. And Kreider tried to understand, in view of this evidence, what on earth is the deal? How did this happen? And so in searching for documents that might attest to what happened, Kreider was surprised to find, instead of treatises on evangelism, numerous, big-time, widely distributed documents produced by early church fathers on an unexpected virtue, which was patience. Patience. How do you grow a church on patience? I'm going to read you a little bit. This, this first bit comes from Justin Martyr who was an apologist and an early uh, church father. According to Justin, patience is central to the life of the church community. Justin uses various sayings of Jesus to illustrate the significance of patience for members of his community, turning the other cheek when someone has hit him in the face, giving their tunics to someone who takes their cloak, avoiding the incendiary sin of anger, and if they're compelled to go one mile, to go two miles. When people see Christians behaving like this, Justin comments, people are intrigued. They wonder at the God whom the Christians say motivates this behavior. So it's important for Christians not to fight like other people, and it's essential that they live their good deeds visibly in the sight of others. Then, when Christians live with integrity and visibility, by our patience and meekness, Christians will draw all men from shame and evil desires. According to Justin, patience attracts people. This comes from the church father Origen in the mid-third century. In embodying patience, Jesus perfectly expressed the way that God works to bring God's mission to completion. God, in dealing with Israel across the centuries, was never in a hurry. 
God instructed the people, sent them prophets, and, quote, was always patient by sending those who cure. In the fullness of time, God sent the chief healer, the prophet who surpassed prophets, the healer who surpassed healers. The people rejected and killed Jesus, but they did not frustrate God's purposes. God's mission is unhurried and unstoppable. When people seek to follow Jesus according to origin, God forms them into people who embody this patience. Christ's followers are not in a hurry. They listen carefully when the word is read and preached. They patiently call to account straying Christians who attend worship services irregularly. Patient believers trust God. When they're subjected to discipline, they patiently bear the judgment whether they've been rightly or wrongly deposed. Their reflexes are nonviolent. When others treat them violently, they never exact an eye for an eye, but respond in silence and patience, even offering words of blessing. And then finally, Christians don't need to feel frantic. This is Kreider summarizing what he's read. Christians don't need to feel frantic. Christians do what they can to share their faith and to bring people through baptism into the life of God's people, but Christians are never impatient. They entrust all things, including their own lives and development, in the salvation of all people to the God who patiently is making all things new. In the middle of intense persecution, with a steep challenge of a deeply entrenched pagan society, a minority Jewish fringe movement overtook the Roman Empire, and now 2,000 years later, we're standing in this room. They built a church and, and sought the kingdom on the virtue of patience. The church believed, as we've been talking about in Joshua 21, that in dealing with a patient God, it requires us becoming patient people. Patience was the soil for growth. Patience was the activity of trust. Patience, patience is what was most needed in the face of persecution and discipleship. And as I've shared versions of this in the past, while it is far easier to talk about a hyped up, come to our service and this service changes everything, while it's way easier to talk about those, moment, those moments where we feel like there's a shift, a fork in the road, it seems to be the case that in order to cooperate with the way that God has worked historically, and I think you might even say in your life uh, over time, God works slowly. God's transformation requires patience and, re and cooperation for the long haul. And so if we're to be in alignment with the way that God works, we must encourage each other to become people of, of patience, people who know about perseverance, people who know how to endure to endure the droughts of disbelief and doubt that come in life. We need to build up these large reservoirs of trust by developing patience when things are going okay. In dealing with a patient God, we must become patient people. Uh, Dallas Willard is a brilliant author, writer. He passed away a few years ago. 
And Willard apprenticed or, or, or was, a, was a master teacher to a handful of people that you've heard of. John Ortberg is a big Presbyterian preacher who's really great. James Brian Smith, who wrote our, the books that we're using for the Apprentice Group series, was also mentored by Willard. And Willard and John Ortberg were having this conversation. And Ortberg said to Willard, it's like, what's one thing I could do to supercharge, to, to freshen up, bring new energy to my spiritual life. And Orberg said that Willard's, Willard's response was shocking in its simplicity. Dallas Willard looked him in the eye and said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. For hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our world today. In dealing with a patient God, we must become patient people. All of us are going to face challenges of some kind, suffering of some kind in our lives. Folks in our church have gone through the battle with cancer and know what it means to suffer and to be taught patience the hard way. Many in our church struggle with infertility, and as each month rolls by and you're not pregnant, dealing with the heartbreak and the grief and the anxiety and the fear of that. It's another opportunity to learn the hard way, patience. The people we love, we will all someday die unless Christ returns during our lifetime. We will all die. We will all suffer. The early church knew this. In fact, for them, it was their biggest fears were not the natural causes of death, but being hunted down as followers of Jesus. How on earth can we build up those reservoirs of trust, of confidence, of character, so that we can endure the seasons, the drought of doubt and disbelief and suffering? We must practice patience when things are going okay. So some practical ways that we can do this to practice patience, to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. The first one is going to blow your mind. Drive the speed limit. That sounds terrible. People are so slow. Drive the speed limit. Uh, get behind somebody else at checkout at the grocery store and just hang there. Uh, do anything that involves children. <laughs> Help me, Lord. Uh, do anything that involves children. Uh, serve the poor. We, in our apprentice group, the sole training exercise for this rotation for us is to do a 48-hour media fast. It was like we told people not to breathe for two weeks. Uh, spend time without your phone. Sit in silence. Read longer and better books. Learn to pray. Study the Bible. Cook meals at home. When your flight is late, don't whine don't go chew out to the person working at the desk who had nothing to do with it. Sit in silence and don't look at your phone. We need to use all of the little opportunities, even after we dismiss in just a couple of minutes. You may have a conversation with the person and you're thinking, this is the most boring conversation I've ever had in my life. Practice patience and listen. When, when a family member calls or when your neighbor wants to talk, use the opportunity to practice patience, to build up those, those reservoirs of character, that strength of character that enables us to persevere even in the small ways. Learn to default in the middle of stress to trust that even in this, God who is patient is patiently working on me. 
I came across this beautiful prayer by Pierre Telhard de Chardin. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. A beautiful prayer on our theme today that I want to just share with you. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We're quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We're impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it's the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time, that is to say grace and circumstances acting on your own goodwill, will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be, and tattoo this on your mind. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that His hand is leading you. And accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that His hand is guiding you. Even when you can't see it, even when you can't feel it, even when you're feeling impatient in the process, in working with a patient God, we must learn to be patient people. The early church had a habit of of, of lifting up these moral exemplars. They told their story so that the whole community might embody how they lived. One of these chapters of of heroes is is in our Bible in Hebrews chapter 11. And from the beginning of the Old Testament through, uh, through Jesus, we see these exemplars of people who have patiently endured suffering and scorn and ridicule. Some of them, like Moses, never seeing what was promised. Moses never entered into the land that he'd been such a bringing the people into. And so in Hebrews 11, we read the names of Gideon, Barak, Deborah, all of these amazing people. And then it transitions to chapter 12. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so many exemplars, such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance, or you might say with patience, the race that's been marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured, patiently endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition so that you too may endure with patience. A church that would become a community shaped by the gospel must be a people who are shaped and marked by patience. And a church that is unhurried, a church that is fixated on going at the pace of God's work among us doesn't need to worry about church growth strategies or marketing or PR, even though if you do that professionally, no shame. But if we trust the work of the Spirit, do any of us need to think about it in this context? No. In dealing with a patient God, we're called to be patient people. And if we will become all that God might want us to be, we need to stop kicking against the goads, as the Scripture would say, and cooperate. So we'd ask ourselves today, God, what work are you trying to do in me that I'm trying to hurry up? 
What are you trying to teach me right now that I have been kept from learning because I won't go at your pace? How are you trying to shape me and renew me, but I have been keeping you from it because I feel like you're not doing it on my terms or on my timing? This is an invitation to reconsider patience. And in working with God, we must become patient people. Therefore, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him patiently endured. And may in following Jesus and fixing our eyes on him, we be given the grace and the strength to patiently endure. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your patience with us for continuing to knock on the door of our hearts while we are uh, anywhere but paying attention to you. Thank you for continuing to extend mercy to we who mock you, who neglect you, who deny you. Thank you for, for continuing to extend this window of mercy while the world is far from you. I just ask today that uh, aware of what you have communicated and aware of your character through Scripture, we might more completely become people who are characterized by patience who don't try to rush or alter how you work with us, but cooperate with it completely. And give us the grace to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is our, our teacher, our exemplar, our Lord, our King. May in following him, we become like him, and in doing so, be a blessing to the world. And I pray for those in this room who are in the middle of seasons of just great suffering. Maybe it's private, Maybe it's a battle that only you know about or only you know how intense it is. May God give you grace to patiently endure. For those who are sick, for those who doubt, for those who are waiting on good news, for those who are fed up with how slowly things happen, Lord Jesus, would you pour out your grace and make us into people of patience. And as you shape us, we entrust you with results. We pray that as a result of your shaping us, that men and women might be born into your family through faith in Jesus. We entrust all of this to you. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.